Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Leslie Holt. Leslie is an accomplished artist. Her work has been featured internationally. She is also the co-founder of Red Dirt Studio, where she displays her work, teaches artwork. She has been an advocate for people with de developmental disabilities, mental illness. Um, as somebody who has some mental illness herself, this episode really dives into how she has coped and adapted, but also how she has used her artwork to reframe and gain more of an understanding and empowerment over her own self, how she sees herself, how she sees mental illness in general. This is a really fascinating, really deep conversation. I was particularly impressed with how Leslie shared the information of when you have a friend, family member, coworker who is going through maybe some depression, how we can help that person without getting in the way. What are the best things to do? How do we know what the warning signs are? So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Thank you very much for listening. Leslie, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It's always great to see you. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Gustavo. I'm really honored to be on. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. So I would like to tell people a little bit about um, your work, who you are, what you do, what's, you know, I know you're, you're an artist. Um, talk a little bit about, about your art, how you got started with it, um, and then we'll, we'll dive deeper from there. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm an artist. I have been an artist my whole life. I would say um, I have a funny, sort of funny, maybe kind of gross story about how I got into it seriously, which is involved a lawnmower in my toe. And I won't say anything more than that, but it meant that I couldn't play tennis that summer, which is what I was doing. And it was the summer before ninth grade, I was switching high schools. And so I took a painting class that summer and got completely hooked on painting. And I had a really dynamic, wonderful teacher all through high school. And so that's when it became sort of solidified that, yeah, I'm an artist and this is going to stick. And, um, and it did. <laughs> so, yeah. That's interesting. So can you tell us a little bit more about, so I, I'm assuming before that you drew for fun, you kind of liked it, but it wasn't something that you really took seriously. Is that correct? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's sort of age appropriate, right? I mean, when you're a kid, you're just curious and you do what you want to do. And I just love doing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I got in sort of this intensive program in high school and it's sort of, it was amazing. And um, I, it was all I wanted to do. I was pretty obsessed with it in high school. So, yeah. Interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about your teacher and how how they inspired you and or like what they did what did they do to make it so engaging and so interesting and you know making you want to pursue this yeah well his name is Walter Bartman he is still teaching he's not at a high school now he has a center um, an art center that he teaches at um, that he founded um, and what what it was about him very dynamic very passionate person who took us all really seriously. And if you were into it and you put the work in, he was sort of like your champion, your advocate. Um, 
he very much instilled, you know, not for everybody, but for a lot of us, you know, an intense work ethic. So there was sort of this, you know, there was an art group at school and, you know, we would go be in the art room, paint after school, weekends, nights. We all, we went out at night and painted under streetlights. Um, we painted each other, you know, so there was, you know, just, he made a community more than anything um, and just instilled a seriousness in us, you know, we, you know, I look at, you know, ninth grader now and I think, wow, that's a little kid. And, you know, and so I think of, well, that's because I'm old, but um, you think of, you know, a teacher taking that kid super seriously and saying, you know, I want you to fill this sketchbook by the end of the semester. And I want you to do this drawing this week and, you know, gave us a lot of work to do um, and talked about the meaning and showed us artists, you know, just sort of this whole holistic experience of art. Yeah. That's amazing. Did he, um, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of community, which I think is, is fascinating and super important. So what did that, what did that community mean and how did he make it feel? How, as, so as long as you like community is a sense for me, it's a sense of like, you belong, you're not being, you know, you're not being judged. It's almost like a, like a second home. Right. And yeah. So basically, as long as you took the work seriously and you tried, he made you feel like you belong to something. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. And I think it's a way, you know, high school is rough. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a rough, you know, so I think a lot of high schoolers are looking for a home, like they join the band or the track team or, you know, so it was, it was like that. It was sort of um, it was, yeah, a safe place to go, you know, and sometimes if I didn't have a friend who had the same lunch period as me, I'd just go to the art room and eat lunch and I'd find somebody I, I knew there, you know. Um, yeah, it was about creating a really vibrant, safe place with, without calling it that, right? I don't even think safe space was a phrase back then, you know, but really that's what it was um, to be like the weird kids. It was a lot of, you know, misfits and weirdos and um, yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. That is powerful. Um, at that, at that age, right. Does he know, was he, how did you feel like he was um, assessing the different talent levels of the different artists, right? Like if he felt that you were trying, not you, but a student was trying and maybe they just didn't quite have the ability, was it something that he still encouraged them if they liked it or because it's it's too soon to tell what what you can make of it at that point in time, right? Yeah, to a large extent. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. I, I would, um, I'd love to talk to him about that in terms of how he feels about, you know, quote unquote, natural talent versus everybody's got potential, right? Um, and sort of the myth of you're natural and you don't even have to try, it just comes out of you. Um, certainly there are people like that, you know, like the Michelangelo's, but really most of us are like slogging along. And I was a very slow, I consider myself sort of a slow learner in terms of some of the technique and the drawing and 
I didn't, I don't feel like I picked it up really fast, but I worked really hard. <laughs> and so he always respected that. And, and um, he had the skills and the, and the vision to take somebody like me, not like he molded me or anything, but to take somebody like me with enthusiasm and a certain amount of skill and really push me, you know, to the next level, essentially. Um, so I think that's more how he thought of it. Um, rather than people who you know had talent or didn't have talent um and which is what made it so affirming i think for a lot of people for a lot of the students sort of like you all have this potential um but i think a lot of it was like the hours that you put in you know he was very demanding of that and like he'd ask you how many hours did you spend on this painting you know it's like you got to put the put your time in, you know, which I think is really valuable. You know, I think musicians are just used to that. You got to do your scales. You got to put the practice in. But artists, not so much, not as much. Um, so that was that was very, very helpful. He knew even back then about that. Uh, what is it? The 10,000 hour rule that you have to put in to, to master something. Right, right, right. The Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, I think that was. Yeah before that notion was in the air. But yeah, he definitely would subscribe to that. That's really interesting. And how did that, so as you moved into college, and I know we're gonna talk about mental health and neuro blooms and everything, but take us through the steps of when you went into college, you know, what were you, what were you looking to do? What were your, what were your goals and, and drives at the time? And how are you adapting to that? that new challenge, the new Vista? Yeah, college was very rough for me. I went to, um, I think technically five different colleges. <laughs> Took a semester off in there. Um, uh, that's when depression really hit me. You know, I, I think um, it, was, it was there in high school and even as a kid, um, but it really hit me. Um, and it, as it hits a lot of people at the college, college age, it's a huge shift, it's a huge transition. Um, and so I was pretty lost during a lot of college when I went to the first school I went to uh, Westland in Connecticut I went there for three semesters and um, was fully intending on majoring in art, but the art department was like two people and um, I only got to study with one person for three semesters and and we didn't really click and so I had a lot of sort of soul searching like am I in the right place? Am I really an artist? You know, that, that kind of like deep identity stuff and you pile depression on top of that. It didn't go well. So, um, so, and then I went to an art school for a semester and that didn't feel like the right fit either. Cause I like a lot of, I wanted, you know, a whole liberal arts education. Um, that was important to me. Um, and then, yeah, I went to a state school. I lived with my parents. And then I ended up at Washington University in St. Louis, geared up, ready to go with the art thing again, very clear about it. And I went in as a junior. So that's when, you know, you're really focusing on your major. I went right into this pretty tight community of juniors and seniors in the painting major. And, and I really thrived there. Still struggled quite a bit with depression, but that school was a good fit for me. It had, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much the trajectory um, of my college years. It was a bit of a journey. Yep, <laughs> bumps along the way. <laughs> Most definitely, everybody. 
I had my share of speed bumps too, but so when you, um, I, I spoke to another, you know, great guest about mental health and he has depression as well. And um, one of the things that I, I would like your opinion on is, so what do you know, do you remember, he said like there were certain things, certain things are genetic in us and certain things can be triggered by our environments. Do you remember kind of what, what triggered that? And then can you also talk about, uh, we talked a lot about anchors, like the anchors he used and the help he sought out to help him get back to a place where he was, you know, could function and could thrive and could adapt. Would you agree, like, would you agree with that general framework? Absolutely. And I think a big part of what happened from high school to college is I was anchorless, you know, and I realized a lot of what I did throughout my whole school year, elementary school, I was often the teacher's pet by design. I, I latched onto teachers. My home life was pretty, pretty chaotic, you know, I had mental health issues sort of abounded in my home life. And, um, and then when I went to college was sort of plopped down there. Um, I couldn't find my bearings, you know, so I had like one really good friend who I felt safe with and um, some professors in other, other subject matters, which was interesting. I actually thought about majoring in poli sci for half a minute because I loved this one class I was in. And my advisor was like, that's not a good reason to switch your major. I was like, okay, <laughs> but it really was like searching for my mother or something, you know, just like, will you take care of me? Um, not literally, but absolutely. I was anchorless. I love that word. Um, and so that was a huge trigger for me. Um, you know, not, and frankly, the school I was at was kind of known for that. Like there was no common meeting place at the school. There was this small student center, um, it was a really interesting conversation to have with various people. Like so many people literally felt isolated at that school. Um, so that was a really bad match for me. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I would say, and you know, as far as specific triggers, you know, in terms of, you know, when sort of it became clear that the depression was unmanageable I was living in this group house. It was not great. There was not great communication among us. Go figure, I'm a bunch of college students not communicating well. And, um, and I wasn't enjoying my classes and I started to have this focus problem, which is generally when that starts happening, I know sort of an episode is coming. Like I literally couldn't decide if I was going to class or going to get a coffee or going to the library, you know, it's sort of like minute decisions were just torturous for me. And I was literally walking to my art history class and instead walked to my car and drove from Connecticut to Maryland because I just, I went home. Because <laughs> that was, that occurred to me as the thing I should do. Um, and I, I stayed there for like a week and then I came back and yeah, that was the beginning of okay, this is a real problem. It sounds like I'm like a self-preservation instinct kicked in and you just went home. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as you, as you, I mean, we're here to, you know, feel free to share whatever, whatever it is that feels, that feels right to do it. But 
can you help us understand two things, right? Number one is how did you start to get back those anchors and how can people who are friends like are friends with you? So if I have a friend who has depression, how do I know, right? When, when and how to best be there for them and intervene or, you know, just support them through that? What are the things that we should be aware of as people so that we can help each other in those, in those moments? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what was the first question? <laughs> the first question great. is, so how did you, how did you start to realize um, and, and get back the, the anchors that you, that, yeah. that helped you, right? Move, move, not, depression is something that my understanding is it's always, it's always with you on some level and never completely goes away, but at least you can get to the point where, where you're okay or where you're, you're thriving and not right. It's you're okay. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. And you don't think about it. If you're lucky, you know, you get the combination of treatment and healing and uh, you can spend a lot of your life, not even worrying about it. And I've been very lucky that way. Um, uh, yeah, so finding my finding my roots, finding my anchor, that was a very long process. Like I said, I went to four different schools before I landed where I where it was good for me to land. Um, and so, and that also meant finding different treatment providers, you know, like therapists, psychiatrists, you know, that was extremely chaotic. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's a really interesting question, Gustavo, because I'm not quite sure what clicked it in place in terms of when I moved to St. Louis to the school that I actually graduated from, I was still casting about quite a bit um, and struggling quite a bit. Um, I kind of went in and out of these depressions. Um, so yeah, it's good. I don't know if I have an answer to that question. You know, it took a long time <laughs> and it was maybe not school that did it. Um, uh, and then, you know, the second question about how can people support people's depression is really important. Um, and it's different for different people, right? We're all different, but I think the main thing is it, accepting it, you know, like, like believing the person I think with any mental health condition like yeah it is that bad it's that bad and uh no this person this friend is not being lazy or um they're not unintelligent I always felt so dumb because I couldn't organize my thoughts and that's the worst feeling to have in college you know where you're supposed to be smart um and um, so like believing and then being with them um, and asking them, you know, do they want to be with somebody? Would they rather be alone? Um, what makes sense? What makes sense to do? And then offering, you know, I, you know, a very good friend of mine, um, when I went through a very bad period, she sat with me she would do stuff and just sit with me so she was physically present but like I couldn't I barely could talk I was in such a bad bad way and then like 
but I felt like I went to work with her and sat in her office while she taught. Um, I went swimming with her, you know, she just made it herself available to join her in her life and made it, made it okay for me to be in this, you know, horrible state. Um, so for me, acceptance is a lot of it. Um, and then I think really key again with many mental health conditions, it's, it's the double-edged sword of it. It's the time you need people the most and it's the hardest time to reach out um, because you have no sense of self or hope or, um, you know, just you feel totally um, worthless and not worth spending time with, right? And so to reach out is sort of just really, really challenging to do. Um, and so the gentle reminders that, hey, I'm here, you may not want to spend time with me, you may, you know, that may be just too much for you, but I'm here. And, you know, a text, uh, you know, an email, a call, maybe like leave a message. Um, I tend to isolate severely with depression. And a lot of people do. Um, partly, it's the nature of the beast, and uh, it comes with just this shame piece. Um, so, just gentle nudges about. I know you're going through a rough time, and I'm here. Um, and even if you never even talk to the person, that really matters. It makes a difference that somebody knows somebody is watching out for you. Um, you are not alone. Um, yeah. It can be, it, I think it's very hard to, it can be very hard to watch somebody go through it, especially if you have not gone through it yourself. Um, it can be scary. Um, you know, the person you know is, is pretty transformed and pretty, you know, feels pretty beaten down. And of course, everybody worries about suicide. And, you know, that's a real, that's a real worry. Um, you know, what I've learned, um, over and over from doing work in mental health and, and, um, and just personal experiences with friends is um, it's really okay to bring it up. You know, it's okay to ask, do you feel like you're hurting yourself? Uh, do you feel like you're going to hurt yourself? Um, it, you're not gonna make them think of it by asking. Um, it's okay to ask, they might not answer you, but it's an important conversation to have. Like, Absolutely. Something yeah. that I have a, a couple of, of questions. And I thought that was a great answer um, based on what you just said. So when somebody who is going through a depressive episode says that they want to be left alone and yet like with your friend, it was so, it, it helped you to be with her and just to participate in her life and just hang out there. So when, can you think of a situation where it actually is better for at least like in your experience where you it would have been better for you to be alone or is that something that you know the the friends in your life and the people who matter to you should just kind of nudge past that a little bit and say are you sure and it's totally okay and you know why don't you come and do this with me or why don't you come just hang out how do you know I know it's tough answer but like can you know what, what's your experience with that is is there actually a time where it's better to be alone? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, and 
what I'll say for myself is um, shortly after I started um, school at Washington University, my roommate quit school and left me alone. And so I broke my lease and I moved in with this family. Um, and uh, the, it was not going well with the family. Um, just, it was not a good match that it wasn't, nothing horrible happened, but it wasn't a good personality match. And, um, and so, you know, and I was severely depressed. So I spent a lot of my time just in my room and they would try to beckon me out of my room and, you know, get me the TV room was right across from my room, which was sort of miserable for me because they watched a ton of TV and, um, and I just really did not want to spend time with them. And so it's an example of, yeah, that was a good choice. You know, not like staying in your room for, you know, 17 hours a day is a, is a good idea necessarily, but that was self-preservation. And that was, so, so like, it has to be a safe person. It has to be a healthy person. It has to be that accepting person. Um, you know, and has to be somebody who can really hear you. Um, and as far as being a friend, like, am I that safe person? Um, that's a very intuitive thing. Um, and I think what can be helpful is if you know somebody who goes through depression, you know, is to talk to them about that when they're not in it um, and say, well, what's been helpful to you? Or what made sense? What did I do right last time? Or what would you prefer I not do? Um, that's a, that's a deep friendship to have that conversation. Um, and those can be sort of mini conversations. You know, I, I will tend to tell people, you know, I am kind of disappearing for a bit. I love you. Um, I'll be back. <laughs> um, but you know, like I've never liked talking on the phone. Right. So it's like, it's just going to get worse. And, um, uh, you know, so sort of many adjustments to how people react to me is how I've handled that. I've never sort of sat down and said, this is what I need. Um, cause you know, sometimes you just don't know. I mean, it's like, you're out of your mind. So you don't know what's going to work. So I, I appreciate your, your generosity and, in, in sort of the nudging where it's like, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, how about we just watch TV, you know, like really low impact. Nobody needs to talk. You're just sitting there. And um, how about I come over and even just to lay eyes on them? Like, oh, I made this really awesome soup and I'm gonna bring you some. And then they can choose not to open the door. You can leave it at their doorstep, right? Or let you in and talk for five minutes, you know, and then you, you still have an eyeball on them. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's very nuanced, right? Um, tricky. Is how, and, and, and that's a great answer. And that just all these situations are fluid. You know, you have to, it's about how well do you know the person, how comfortable, you know, you are and what your rapport is together. And then you feel that out. But can you also talk a little bit about, you know, the, psychiatrists and therapists and again that's such a I don't think that gets discussed often enough what what has worked for you and what advice would you give to somebody else to get a better outcome from their situation with that because those relationships are important absolutely if they're, if they're especially if they're good relationships which hopefully you know they should yeah 
which is not a given, right? So our yep. mental health system is so broken. Um, so if you actually are lucky to access mental health care, um, sometimes it's a question if that will be a good match for you for whatever reason. Um, that being said, you know, what worked for me, again, might not work for everybody, but yeah, I, I for most of my life, have done a combination of psychiatry and, and therapy. And what I, I think people might not know about psychiatry um, is they are not there to talk to you about your childhood or even your everyday struggles. They are really there to monitor and manage your symptoms and prescribe you medication. I think that's shifted a lot, um, probably in the last 20 years, um, where, and I think people get um, kind of put off by that, like they don't care about me, but that is really more the role of the psychiatrist. Now, it's rare, it happens, but it's rare to find a psychiatrist who wants to sit and talk to you for an hour like a therapist. Um, and once you are stable, whatever that means to you, you won't necessarily see your psychiatrist very often. That's the goal, to not have to see them very often. Like I see mine like once every six months or um, this, this year it's been annually. So, um, but then your therapist is there to talk about, you know, whatever might be triggering you. Um, some, you know, depending on the kind of therapy and there's a million different kinds of therapy, um, talk about how to manage it, talk about, you know, childhood stuff that may have led up to this biological stuff, you know, like my mom has bipolar, um, you know, what it means going forward, talk to you about a lot of people don't want to take medication um, and not everybody has to. Um, that's, that's a really hard choice for a lot of people. And that's something you can process in therapy. Not necessarily great to process that with your psychiatrist because obviously they believe in medication. <laughs> so, and, and it to the point where it can feel like it's being pushed on you, right? Um, yeah, so I've had both good and bad experiences with psychiatrists. Um, and um, what I would say, whatever I recommend to people if they choose psychiatry at all, is to really stick, stick with it and don't stick with somebody that's not working for them. Um, I, I've done that before and it's, that's not a, that's not a necessarily safe situation for you. Um, you know, if it's somebody you don't feel like you want to call if you're in crisis, that's, that's not the psychiatrist for you. Right. Um, yeah, but the therapy is sort of the on the ongoing relationship, um, to sort of dig deeper and, um, and sometimes that can be, you know, for some folks with depression, they don't necessarily need medication or they don't need it long term. And therapy is what's most helpful to them um, in terms of coping with what's going on, in terms of, you know, there's cognitive behavioral therapy where they change their change their thoughts to kind of change how they feel. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's tons of that stuff. And then there's alternative healing modalities. Um, I'm doing something called somatic experiencing, um, which is very much about trauma and the body. Um, so there's less talking, which is fascinating. I've always done like talk, talk therapy. And, and this is sort of, she stops me and asks me how things are feeling in my body. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, 
so that's been mind blowing. It's been wonderful and really fascinating. Um, so there, there's different kinds of therapy. People should know that if something isn't clicking, there's options. I think it brings me back to a question I wanted to ask you before. Were you? I know that when you're going through a period of depression, it can be really difficult, but are you able to, or when you do regain some perspective or some, you know, get some of yourself back, were you able to see or appreciate just that, right? It's a process and it's okay. And I don't have to feel the shame that I'm feeling to this degree because I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out. So you haven't given up, right? Isn't that, that's one of the most important things is even if you feel like you've hit rock bottom, if you haven't given up, there's still the possibility of finding that, that combination of therapies, modalities, you know, support group that's going to work for you or work much better for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know when I'm emerging, um, when I have these glimmers of hope, um, yeah, when I'm like, when I can be patient with it, when I don't want to just banish it from my body, you know, because that doesn't work. <laughs> Even medication doesn't work that way, you know, um, because like you said, it's part of, it's part of you. Um, it like, it demands a certain amount of respect. It has a certain amount of power and you have to contend with that. And, and there's a whole lot of patience, um, which is when it feels intolerable, that, that is the most painful part. Cause it feels like it's never going to end. Um, and that's where people get in real trouble and, and sometimes do hurt themselves. Um, cause they see no, no end to the pain. Yeah, that that's um and and from what you're saying the for you at least the a good uh, uh an effective way out of that is to try to accept it or like you said appreciate its power appreciate what you're feeling and just sit with it not avoid, not avoid it, not run away from it, not try to banish it. Yeah, I think that is very easy to say in retrospect. So I yes. think I believe that right now because <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good. Um, that is almost impossible while you're in the thick of the crisis. And, and that's part of the crisis, right? Is it just feels like it won't end. So um, I, I never, I, I always qualify when I say something like that because it's like, if you're in the thick of it and somebody would say that, you'd be like, get out of here. You know, like super unhelpful, go away. You know, <laughs> like yeah. just be patient and recognize its power. Oh no, I want relief. You just want relief. Um, so yeah, but yeah, in retrospect, yes. And, and when, it's, when it's lifting, yes. That's when you're able to have more perspective. Absolutely. I, I am like going through, I've, I've had some bouts of depression, not to the same, not to the same degree, but I've had, you know, uh, at least in the last couple of years, some 
some physical injuries that I have I'm better from, but they were definitely like I had those moments of. I know it's not the same thing, and I'm not trying to say it is, but this is my trying to my empathetic moment of trying to imagine what what it is like for somebody else's. I had that feeling of I don't know if I'm ever going to get better. I don't know if this pain's ever going to go away. It's not the kind of pain that I can just sit with because it's you know physically jolting and it's like spasming things and I can't do anything about it I can't I there's no relaxing there's no you know you just ride it out until it goes away however long it is and so I had I had a lot of those those emotions of feelings that is this going to go away how am I going to manage this I don't know what you know I don't know what to do absolutely and uh, and you're right. It's not the same, but it's still depression, you know, and then some people might call that situational depression. I think it's all situational, but you know, that's, that's depression. Um, you know, the different, the only difference between that, I mean, because that's, you know, your feelings that you just described are very familiar to me, um, is that is the duration, you know, and sometimes the intensity, right. I imagine you didn't get to the point where you were thinking about hurting yourself, hopefully. No, um, no, no. but but so it's about the intensity and the duration. Um, when it's when it's chronic depression, it repeats. You know, it comes back. Um, it's not just based on a, a situation, although there are these triggers, right? But um, I think that is a great way to find empathy and to understand. You know, so what if you had that experience that lasted for six months? You know, what if you felt that way for six months? Um, uh, that would be a you know, a different ball game, right? So, but it's, it's a very, you know, so I look at these PET scan images um, that um, we'll talk about later, but, you know, they look at PET scans of people with depression or depressed symptoms and people who are sad or listless. And those PET scans look very similar to each other. So it's not, it's not that you're not having the same or similar feelings as somebody who has chronic depression. It's about the intensity and the duration of it that sort of distinguishes it. Um, yeah. Yeah, but let's, no, I mean, there's a great segue. Let's talk about your artwork. Let's talk about NeuroBlooms. What gave, what gave you the idea to start First of all, looking at those scans and then turning it into something artistic. Um, well, lots of things. So I, I had dealt with mental health in my work here and there, you know, sort of off and on. Really, I mean, you could call self-portraits. I did these very dark self-portraits in high school, you know, so you could t- call that being about mental health. Um but I started, I sort of overtly started dealing with mental health in grad school. Um, and I, I did images um, of pills and pills spilling in different locations. Um, I went home for the holidays and spilled my mom's pills and took pictures of them. Um, just talking about general disarray, chaos, and something that's gone wrong in the home. Um, and then... Um, and so, and so, which is to say, it's sort of just been this interest for a long time and, um, but not sort of continuously, but so I got back to it, um, really when I moved back to my home state. So I, I graduated, um, 
from WashU in St. Louis and then stayed there for like 20 years. Um, and except for three years of grad school. And then my, um, my wife got a great job offer here in DC. My parents were aging and needed help. So we had not planned to move from St. Louis. We loved it there, but sort of those two major things came together. So we moved back here. Um, and that was a really hard transition. And I think that's what got me back into dealing with issues of mental health. I looked at art, his, art historical issues of people in sort of despair and extreme emotion. That's sort of how it started. And then I always had these brain images in my mind and sort of had collected some of them. And I mean, I can't talk about it without saying my sister's a neuroscientist who studies schizophrenia. So it's sort of like, it's in my consciousness and in my family, right? <laughs> to look at the brain, even though I know not, almost nothing about the science behind it. I'm looking at it from a very different perspective than, than she is. But I just, I just started playing with them. You know, I don't remember the exact moment what was going on in my head, but I thought I have had these kicking around for quite a while, I'm just gonna dig in with this subject matter. And, um, and I was doing embroidery, I still do embroidery and paint. And so it seems sort of perfect to, you know, hand embroider these digitally based images. It seems sort of like a potent way to deal with them. Um, you know, these images that literally flash for, you know, fraction of a second and I'm sort of slowly embroidering them for hours, you know, and embroidery is certainly a very meditative and healing activity. So, and I, I think recently what I've come to understand is that it's a little bit of my grappling with science and the notion of objective data about our, the experience of the mind, right? I mean, how ridiculous is that? Um, <laughs> that, that there's objective data about that, but that's in a way what, what the science is trying to trying to do not pretending like it can but that's that's the direction that is interested in going um is is finding finding the trends finding the categories finding what's happening in the brain i believe in that deeply but i also believe that that's a very that's just one way to look at mental health so yeah the, the scientific method has it's super useful in some areas and it's super reductionistic in other ways too so yes we have to at least my, my take on that is let's let's find where it's useful for us and then let's discard it where it's not and find whatever find whatever is useful but when i look at so for example your neuro blooms them i'm not an i'm not an artist i can i've i appreciate art but i it was never something that um, I'm more like, you know, music, movies, uh, books. But when I looked at your neurobooms for the first time months ago, it was the first time in my life that I had like a, a visceral reaction to them. Um, it was, it was just really interesting experience. I want, I encourage everybody to go take a look at them, um, order some, but your, like it, it hit me in my gut and I've never experienced that with art before. Wow. Wow. 
thank you. That's an amazing thing to hear. <laughs> That's sort of dreamy, <laughs> an artist's dream. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, that's, thank you for saying that. You're welcome. I mean, it, it's the, it's, and it's not, obviously your the brain scan is the, is the starting piece, but then you're, you're interpreting that in your artistically in your way, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's the starting piece and it's actually become less and less the, the work that I make is sort of taking more less literal approach to the pets the original pet scan imagery it's becoming more abstract um, which is which has been interesting yeah well please talk about tell us more about your work what you've been what you've been working on what's been inspiring you I know that you recently got back from an amazing trip in Amsterdam let's you know please share we'd love to learn more Uh, about that let's talk about Amsterdam (laughs) what a place um (laughs) Yeah, so so lately I have been working on these neuro blooms. Um, uh, they're paintings. They're you know, to try and paint a picture of it for people who are just listening. You know, there's stained canvases. So I pour paint on raw canvas, and so just like when you stain your clothes with grape juice, it seeps and bleeds and drips. And um, I stain a bunch of those canvases at once and then I add stitching to them. And um, the stitching that I've been adding with embroidery thread is um, based on brain images, based on these PET scans of um, people's brains who are, they're experiencing different mental health conditions. Um, And they're compelling for lots of reasons as an artist, they're incredibly compelling color-wise and pattern-wise. They look like kaleidoscopes. Um, I mean, very lopsided kaleidoscopic imageries. They're not symmetrical, but, or mandalas, you know, there's visually, they're just very engaging for me. Um, But also I love sort of the potency of of the meaning behind them. Um, You know, that, that schizophrenia looks so completely different from bipolar. Um, and that, you know, there is really, it's something literally physically happening in your brain. Um, and so I think it starts a conversation about mental health and what is happening in your brain. What is the cause of mental illness or mental health conditions? Um, but it also like just piques curiosity because it's so visually interesting. Um, I, I think that's what I most love about it. It's the images are, are recognizable to some, but to some it's just an interesting image and they want to know more. And that's sort of what I want the conversation about mental health to be about as well. Like, I don't think that we can ever know what the causes of mental health conditions. Um, I happen to think that that will remain a mystery. Um, uh, but we can certainly have really interesting conversations about it. And um, I think the visual is a way to get those started um, because mental health is not necessarily very verbal. You know, what's happening in your interior is sometimes very hard to talk about, right? Um, Like we were just saying, like, 
it's a time when you should be talking to people and reaching out, but it's a time when it's very hard to. So um, I think visual art is a particularly good way to talk about things that are unspeakable sometimes. Um, yeah, so, so I've been working on these mixed media pieces um, for several years now, but really focused on it in the last couple years. Um, I had a, a show at University of Maryland right as the pandemic was hitting. So it actually got cut short, but luckily it, it ran most of its run, luckily. Um, and, um, and then, yeah, I just had a show in Amsterdam over the summer at a place called the Beautiful Distress House, which is this really interesting organization that is totally focused on art and mental health. They, the core of what they do is um, they have this art space where artists, any artists who mostly European artists, I think I was their first American artist exhibit, um, make work, who make work that's any, in any way related to mental health can have an exhibit there. Um, and it doesn't mean that they themselves experience it. Um, you know, the, the relationship to mental health can be really varied and they have theater there, their performances. So it's not just visual arts. And then the second piece of what Beautiful Distress does is coordinate residencies, artists and residencies, um, placing artists in psychiatric facilities. So um, they have exposure to um, psychiatric patients, clinicians, um, other staff members at this hospital, and they can visit with them. They have access, um, not necessarily to people who are so severely ill, you know, that they're on a locked ward, for example, but um, for folks who um, are a little, a little, um, less severe, but, you know, severe enough to be in the hospital or in a day program. Um, and the one in New York, they have one in New York that they've had for a few years, and they just started one in Japan, which had to shut down because of COVID, um, but hopefully it'll get going again. Um, but the one in New York is something I was scheduled to do before COVID, and um, I went up and visited, and it's just amazing. So you really, you live on the hospital grounds. You live on an abandoned hall of uh, an empty part of this hospital that's now an administrative building. And you can go and hang out with patients as much or as little as you want and make your work. And so your work can be influenced by your, your surroundings, by your conversations. You can make work with patients, um, but you have a space in this abandoned hall to make your work and it's totally self-directed. They have a little apartment that they've set up there. Um, so it's up to you to create, it's three months. So it's a nice chunk of time to really dig deep. Um, I cannot wait to do it. <laughs> I am very impatient with this COVID nonsense, um, but yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an absolutely, fa that's fascinating that they would, they would, um whoever thought of that was a very, very intelligent human being because that's just a brilliant idea. Yeah, and, and so it was actually started, I, you know, I don't know the very first program like this, but Beautiful Distress was based on a Dutch program that's been going for like 20 years at a hospital in the Netherlands. Um, and so, 
yeah, that's like pretty well established there. But I don't think there's anything like it in the United States. You know, I don't, I don't think, I think this is the only program like that. I'm pretty sure. Um, very, very unusual. And it has to be an administration, you know, hospital administration that's very open, you know, <laughs> yeah. willing to take that kind of risk. I mean, there's all sorts of things you have to go through to be able to spend time, you know, with the patients, all sorts of background checks and things like that. Um, but yeah, and the, and the man who coordinates it in, in the New York hospital is a real visionary. And he said he was trained as a, as a drama therapist and he's got like all these art therapists on staff, which you are not, you know, you are not an art therapist. I don't wanna be an art therapist. Um, so they make that super clear. You're not treating anybody. You're not, you know, providing treatment. Um, you're there to be an artist connect to immerse to experience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this this thought just came to me while we were talking and i i do want to focus on this too but there's this idea in art um probably in culture too right that beauty is tied with is tied to symmetry, right? The, the mm. more symmetrical the body or the more symmetrical the, the piece of artwork. And I think that part of the reason why I had such a visceral reaction to the Neurobloom's pieces is that it's not symmetrical and it's beautiful and you're you're showing that that's the mean that's part of the meaning that i took from that is that mm. something that you you are intentionally trying to do is that something that people can take with other artistic movements or is that still kind of the the fundamental belief in art that beauty is somehow related to symmetry mm hmm that's interesting. I never thought about symmetry with, well, that's not true. I, I do because, because most of them are a single brain in the middle of the canvas. So in that way, there's symmetry, right? It's sort of the central focal points. And, but then with, through the color and the stitching, you know, it, it becomes completely asymmetrical, sometimes very chaotic. Um, um, I am not interested in in symmetry, so I I feel like I can't even speak to symmetry. <laughs> no, nothing about symmetry, um, except that it's just overrated. Um, I think uh, it's funny because I was talking to a, a friend, a colleague today, who makes very beautiful symmetrical sort of Art Deco like drawings, um, and they just they astound me. They're so beautiful. I appreciate it so much. Um, but it's the furthest thing from my mind when I make work. Um, yeah. Balance, yes. Symmetry, no. <laughs> which is which is interesting because um, there there's a there's a beauty to it that I think is important. So not only are you trying to promote conversations, start conversations, deeper conversations about mental health. But to me, you're also, whether it's intentional or not, you're, I, I think there's a secondary conversation here to be had about how we see beauty and how we see, um, you know, what is our relationship with, with beauty and symmetry and how we perceive ourselves. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, the the tagline of the NeuroBlooms, you know, sort of products, the pins and the and the cups and stuff is making mental health conditions visible and beautiful. Um, and so, and the feedback that I've gotten from people with lived experience with mental health conditions is that more than more than on more than one occasion, you know, I never thought of this as beautiful before. And to the point where some people are like, that's amazing. You know, I love thinking of it that way. And but I had one woman at a talk I gave in Amsterdam who said, you know, I'm really struggling with that idea that this is beautiful. You know, and she was an inpatient in the hospital. And so she was in the thick of it, right? And she's like, tell me more about that because I I don't, this does not feel beautiful to me. And and it really, you know, and this was a public talk, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's like, you're so right. And um I don't know what I said in response, something about in retrospect, I hope that you will find beauty, you know, in your struggle. Um, but it's, it's very, it's a really interesting question for me. Um, anybody who makes beauty out of pain, um, I think is struggles with that. We don't want to, I don't want to romanticize mental health conditions by any means. Um, and uh, I'm sure some people take might take it that way, but um, uh, I do want to I do want to recognize their beauty. You know, I want to recognize people's resilience, and and that what is happening in their brain is it's wild. <laughs> it's you know it's wild what we can see about what's happening in their brain. Um, yeah, beauty is a it's a big topic. <laughs> It is. It is. And, and I don't, yeah, beauty, we, that's a, yeah, how do we think about beauty? What does it mean to us? How do we feel about it? It's not just, you know, it's not just seeing something through, you know, rose colored glasses or looking at something like, for lack of a better word, traditionally beautiful, right? Most people think of uh, like beauty is a very plastic, very you know, flexible idea and concept. It's meant way different things to different people, different periods of time, different cultures. And we, it's really easy to forget that, but it's not just some absolute universal thing, at least not that I've, not, not how I experience it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You bring your whole baggage to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you bring it all. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm particularly fond of sort of the messiness of humanity, you know, like the parts that don't quite work together and, um, you know, the stains that can be beautiful. Um, the mistakes that can be beautiful, the, you know, I try to think of my twenties, not as sort of a lost decade. <laughs> Sometimes I do where it's like, oh man, I was such a mess the entire decade, mostly because of depression, but lots of things. And, and I more have shifted to like, what an amazing thing to go through. I had really fascinating jobs and I, I learned so much about myself and about uh, the world. And I came out this person, you know, that I am, which would be totally different 
if things had been smooth sailing, right? So that's a, that to me is very beautiful, but also very messy. <laughs> so absolutely, it, no, it is. I I feel the same way about my twenties. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's well because it's so easy to get caught in the the trap of well I should have achieved this or I didn't get to this place or I didn't do this thing and this person is way quote unquote ahead of me in this respect and you know it's all these cultural messages that we get that you're supposed to you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to be here and you're supposed to do that right and that to me that's where most of that comes from it's not really like an internal belief that I have about where I should be or who I should be. Um, the messiness and the difficulty and the pain and the, the good things that came from that too are all part of the story. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very much of a cultural norm that's imposed upon us, especially in the United States. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm also I'm also wondering, Leslie, for people who are either thinking about becoming artists or are already artists um, or for for parents who have, you know, um, a child who has shown some kind of an interest in art. Do you have any any advice, any any ideas of like what how to encourage your your child what to what to look for you know what's the road what's the road like as an artist and why has it meant so much to you <laughs> oh my goodness um yeah that's all so interesting um i'm i'm co-director of a, a group a warehouse studio called red dirt studio and part of what we do is mentor other artists. Um, we call ourselves like an incubator, grad school without grades. We meet weekly at something we call a seminar. And that's where people bring things up, like sort of these practical, how do I be an artist? How do I have time to make art when I have to make, have a job, you know, and like, how do I apply for this grant and where should I pursue showing my work? Um, so I have a lot of experience working with other artists that way, usually younger artists or artists who are young to, to the arts. Um, and, you know, what, what we often say, you know, especially we get the question a lot, like, how do I make my art when I'm working full time? Uh, or how do I make a living and make my work? And we're usually like, well, how much time do you have? Because <laughs> and there's no one way to do that, right? If we go around the room, there's like, you know, artists are incredibly creative and have a whole range of risks they're willing to take, both financially and everything. Um, so there is no one solution to that. So it's definitely, you know, there's no guidebook for that. Although there are books about, there's literally a book, How to Survive as an Artist. So, you know, there's tips that you can give. Um, but um, it's always a fascinating, you know, this sort of work-work balance, not even work-life balance. And people who are like, how do you have a kid and be an artist and have a job? You know, and I don't have kids. So I'm like, you, you're on your own. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, 
but yeah, so, so parents, um, yeah, staying open and, and just giving your kid opportunities. Um, my parents were very generous that way. My, my whole family is scientists. And so, um, my mom, my mom really appreciated art. It's not like she was, you know, single-minded about science, but, you know, she was a theoretical physicist. So art was not the main thing on her brain, but she made it very possible for me to explore the arts um you know had after school lessons that she drove me to and and when I got into high school she was she was very encouraging until it seemed like I was taking it way too seriously and I wasn't gonna take physics as seriously you know so we had our moments and then like that I would actually pursue it beyond high school you know there were some moments there right it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable um but I feel like, you know, in the United States, in this economy, so much is insecure about work and jobs, right? It's so much more common now for people to be freelancers or piece together gigs. Um, you know, the, both of my parents were in government jobs where it was like, you work 25 years, you get your pension. I, you know, does the government even offer that anymore? You know, like those jobs are few and far between right now. And so I am hopeful that parents can see that and that and that part of you know staying open is is knowing that they'll figure it out you know they'll there'll be bumps along the way but they'll figure out how to make it work in their lives and um and maybe that means you know a lot of my mom was always like why don't you study graphic design I'm like ugh <laughs> but sometimes that is the answer right somebody's really drawn to that and that's the way they make their living. And that's that's their creative pursuit, or they have that. I have a friend who's a painter and she has a part-time, she has her own graphic design business. So that's how she makes that work. Um, you know, to some people that would be, that would be hell. Um, you know, I have other friends who teach adjunct at various universities and are willing to live on a shoestring. And, um, and that, that can work that can work. Um, but again, it's sort of how much of that are you willing to do? How much my painting, one of my painting teachers in, in undergrad, I can't remember the exact thing he would say, but sort of like, if your impulse is to buy a new shirt instead of a tube of paint, you're in the wrong business, something like that, you know, something sort of obnoxious like that. But like, so how much are you willing to give up is really, it's a good question because it's an unbelievably unstable field economically. We have a slogan at Red Dirt that's um, art is a bad business decision. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're going into it for the money, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong field. So yeah, um, I think, yeah, parents like, it's going to be okay. Um, and, and I guess I would say sort of the opposite, like if your kid goes into accounting, there's, there's maybe more assurances that they could find a steady job with that, but that's not, you know, that's not a done deal either. There's, there's uncertainty in any field. Um, and so just, yeah. Yeah. You know, you do, we do see that more, you know, being in college in the mid 90s um you know there weren't nearly as many career choices open then as there are now they were starting to open up you know the internet was just happening and 
what we have today though is so like you said there's so many more opportunities to bootstrap to freelance to explore different things and figure out what works for you but it always is even as a business owner it's still it's still a choice where um, you hear the the honest entrepreneurs just because you're a business owner doesn't mean you're going to be have some big business and be super wealthy like no it's there's it's a real struggle and it's a price there's a price that you have to pay for everything and are you willing to do it because you love it or because it matters to you in some way or you know like what's the you have to find that out for yourself i think that's great advice yeah 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 it's hard but i you know i think artists are really fond of being like well this is the hardest profession no, I think poets are better at that. Um. <laughs> po- poets are, uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> but I mean, no, like, like you know, scientists have that, those battles, you know, jobs are limited and research funds are limited and, you know, you have to try and, and figure it out. Um, and I mean, maybe it, it's sort of like anything in life, sort of what is working for you? Like maybe having that nine to five job is super important to you. And that's, you know, so you make art on the weekends, you know, um, that's fine. You know, there's no one way to do it. Yep. I think there's also something to be said for better education. And it's not necessarily through the school system, although that would be great, but better education in terms of, um, I think of the cars and i think of people who are really into um high performance cars or racing like they build the enthusiasts and the community up to aspire to something like that as they get older it's not just about the status for a lot of those people it's there's something heartfelt and exciting and interesting about being a car person right and i think that the art community can do more with creating art enthusiasts and people who understand it more. So it doesn't feel so, um, classical music has that same problem too. It feels like unapproachable, like, oh, I have to be a musician or only, you know, only the high society likes classical music or, you know, it's like, it's so, it's the more approachable we can make it, the more people have a chance to appreciate it, buy it, understand it, and help spread the joy of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and finding community is key, for me at least. So, I mean, artists love to sit together and and complain about how hard our lives are, you know, and that's important. That's the important part of what we do, you know, like, and that's community. And then we try and find some solutions. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that kind of camaraderie is important. Um, sort of the notion of the isolated, struggling artist who really needs to be done away with, debunked, because that's not effective for anybody. Yeah. So is there something that we have not discussed yet that you feel is important to talk about? Hmm. I hear you asking your other guests that. I'm always like, hmm, you can't plan for that question, right? So what are we not? <laughs> about? It's like double negative. Um, 
right? Because you don't know everything we're going to talk about. So it's yeah, impossible. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. been wonderful talking to you. I, I can't think of, of anything off the bat. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't think of anything. It's been a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. So please tell everybody how they can find you, connect with you, learn more about you, buy some of your amazing artwork. Yeah, so my website is neuroblooms.com. And um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook pretty actively, Instagram more um, at neuroblooms. Um, and so, yeah, if, and if you are interested in sort of staying connected in a more um, involved or deep way, I have a mailing list. And I actually just started a blog um, couple months ago so I've been doing a lot more writing which is really really satisfying um so yeah there's a lot to poke around and look at on my website so yeah fantastic well I I always enjoy talking to you I'm so glad that we connected and that you took the time and um, I look forward to doing this again and to staying in touch with you thank you so much yeah thank you so much Gustavo it's a real pleasure all right. Have a terrific day, Leslie. You too.